Ramses Armanderes, a visiting professor at Webster University, who comes to us from the University of Minnesota, the co-author of The Tequila Puzzle, The Rise of Small Tequila Producers, a forthcoming article in the Latin American Academic Review, is our guest today on Latin Pulse. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. So we want to talk to you about this issue of tequila. Tequila as a product mm -hmm. has really changed in the past generation. Most of the people listening um, probably just know it as the product they see on their store shelves. But what, as an expert on tequila, would you tell us has been the big change? The big change is the perception on the consumer side. Like, when I was growing up, tequila wasn't like this, like, high-end product compared to cognac and these elements. Like, tequila was something that was, like, uh, bought by blue-collar workers in Mexico because it was a cheap access to, to alcohol. Now, after NAFTA came into play, the view of tequila completely changed. From being, like, this cheap product, all of a sudden, like, turned into, like, this expensive product that whose bottles, like, were standing next to cognac, next to brandy, next to, like, high-end spirits and stop being accessible for the lower classes, like stop being access accessible for blue-collar workers. The reason that we're trying to find in this paper is why. We still don't have like an answer for that. We have guesses. We believe that it has to do with starting tra start trading with like a much richer country, which is the United States. And like uh, purchasing power of American consumers is much higher. So in order to be able to sell to these, like uh, to these people, like they had to change the way tequila is viewed. Instead of being seen as something that like is like a cheap access to alcohol, it had to be like turned into this product that had to be like a status product. Something that like you would like to consume because like you want to show that you're knowledgeable in spirits. So... Let's walk that back. We don't assume that an economic treaty is going to have an effect on alcohol and alcohol culture. But in this case, the North American Free Trade Agreement has this particular impact. In fact, I believe that when the agreement was like uh, being signed, they kind of knew that it was going to have some effect on particular industries. And I'm going to tell you why. Like... The the North American Free Trade Agreement has like this special section, like that guarantees each country, each each signing party, monopoly over certain products. So, what are these products, and which are the signing parties? The signing parties are Mexico, U.S., and Canada. Okay, and this special section like said, okay, there are gonna be like these products that are gonna be distinguished by each country and no other country can produce it and we have to make sure that no other country can produce those products. So to Mexico, NAFTA gave the right to produce tequila and mezcal. To the US, it gave the right to produce bourbon and Tennessee whiskey. And to Canada, it gave the right to produce Canadian whiskey, which implies that Mexico cannot produce anything that is labeled as Canadian whiskey. The US cannot produce anything that is labeled as tequila. And Canada cannot produce anything that is labeled as bourbon. Like, if you want to produce something that is labeled as bourbon, it has to produce in, it has to be produced in in the U.S. That's why I believe that they knew that NAFTA 
was going to have some effect on these particular products. They had to make sure that my, they were protected. So if I'm living in Mexico City yeah. and I want to go and buy some tequila, mm. you're telling me that um, people in the lower middle class and the lower classes are now priced out of buying tequila? Much likely, yeah. Like, I mean, like, even the cheapest tequila has gone up in price compared to other products. Like, now... Um, well, what no, are the spirits that they would be buying then? Would they be buying mezcal? No, mezcal is following the same route as tequila. That's the other product that is protected by NAFTA. Um, I think that the access would be more like a rum, because like there are like a easy easy access to rum, and there is this option of making something that is like a substitute to tequila. It's, it is made it is made with the same plant. But outside the denomination of origin region, what what is that like? Tequila, in order to be labeled as tequila, has to be made in particular regions designated in Mexico. If this uh, if this product is not made in those uh, in those areas, then it cannot be labeled as tequila. There are these companies that have been producing this substitute of tequila, but the fact that they produce it in areas that is not uh, designated by denomination of origin. They cannot label it as tequila, and they have to sell at a lower price. And that's what they have access to. And what are they calling that product? Distilled uh, spirit of agave. Like, in fact, like that's what it says like on the label. Distilled spirit from agave. When we're talking about tequilas, what's the tequila that made the, the breakthrough in, in the States? Is it Cuervo? Cuervo is the one that makes the breakthrough? Cuervo, or, or not? Yes. Cuervo is the, the, brand, the, the, leader, the leading brand. Like it's the one that drives most of the most of the sales, but there are other like uh, it's called the big four. Like there are big four, like four big brands. Cuervo by far is the biggest. The second biggest is like maybe half the size of Cuervo. And Cuervo is as big as it is because of its market in the United States. No, I think that because it was the first tequila producer. Like I mean, like it has like uh, the power of being like that old. Like I'm like. It was the first tequila producer. Like it managed, to, it controlled like the market in Mexico. Like um, NAFTA came into play and knew how to play the game in the U.S. too. Okay. Now there are two other big brands that you you're gonna be able to find like easily in any bar, any store, and it is like Herradura and Salsa. Okay. So these are the three biggest producers. Now, two of them now they are not like owned by Mexicans. They used to be before NAFTA. After NAFTA, they were bought by American companies. Like you remember, that I was telling you, like tequila was like something that was consumed by like the low class, right? Like poor poor consumers. Now, Don Julio came into play. It, it was started to being produced by Jose Cuervo and Daigio in a partnership, fifty percent and fifty percent, and it came out as a high end product. Like I remember, my parents, like every time that they were like, "Oh, you want to have tequila?" As, I won't have to kill as long as it is on Julio. Because everyone knew that it was like the high-end product. So it was the first one to attack this sector. And like it came out as like uh, this like association between these two companies. And just in the last month, I just heard that like, uh, um, Jose Cuervo sold like its half of, of partnership to Daigio. So now Daigio owns the whole 100%. This is interesting to me because I think I remember starting to consume that brand in the 1990s. 
that was the first premium brand. That was the first premium brand. That was the first brand like aiming for middle high class, like people that like were going to college, were well educated, started getting like uh, making more money than their parents, and they were like uh, trying to go to these like up trendy bars in New York City. That was the brand that started uh, attacking this sector. Before that, like there was no high like uh, premium tequila. That 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 wasn't even a word premium tequila that's like a word that came out like with don julio don julio opened that sector and and that's the bigger sector now pretty much no i mean no that's not true the biggest sector is still like uh is still like a mixed like a mixed tequila or tequila mixto tequila mixto is like a tequila that is not pure it's not coming like uh straight from agave it is like 51% sugar is coming from agave and 49% coming from anything else. Usually that anything else is like cane sugar. or That, that is still like the biggest sector of the market. But like 100% tequila, it's growing much faster, significantly much faster than the other sector. The other sector is actually decreasing size. But it, it was so big that like it's still big. It's not that I'm like, it's, it's not that it is gaining size. It's just like, so most of the audience probably connects with tequila just in tasting it, um, the mythology of it, um, even talking about how do you properly drink it, obviously, okay. most people in, in a margarita, or if they're doing shots and straight, <laughs> um, should they be having salt, should they be having a lemon with it? So can you take us past that to um, how tequila really starts? as part of Mexican culture. The story goes like back to like uh, before the colony, before like uh, Spain like uh, conquered Mexico. And back then like uh, the people living in Mexico, like they used to distill a spirit out of agave. That wasn't known as tequila, that was something completely, like the closest thing to tequila that was available to them back then. Then like um, Spaniards came they kept going like on the ceiling the agave because they saw like that it was getting distilled by by the local community and by the 1800s that's when we can start talking about like the first produ uh, production of tequila and like it goes back to uh, Casa Cuervo they are the first ones to actually like be making tequila in Mexico Okay, like I think the market was the first one to actually receive a permit to produce like what was called tequila back then. Before that, like it was just like distilled spirits like coming from agave. Cuervo started producing tequila and like putting rules on how to make tequila. It's something new though. It's something that came out in the 70s when like uh, tequila producers were concerned that in Japan, in Europe, you could find like products labeled as tequila, made in Japan and Europe, not made in Mexico. So in order to stop that from happening, they had to get together and like put rules on the production of tequila and then go to this international organization to protect the idea. Just like cognac has done it, just like any other like the steel spirit has done it, like they decided to, do, to follow the same route. So in, in some ways, some of this obviously, Cuervo as a brand really made the breakthrough for tequila, but how is tequila now changed its image 
from one of uh, spring break drunkenness <laughs> and something that appeals to mm. very young drinkers to the more upscale drinkers. No, it's called marketing, like pure marketing. They still they still market to like a, these like spring breaking like community. They still market to these like. Um, uh, crazy drinkers that they just go like take three shots and just get hammered. They still market to that area. So in order to like attack this other sector, they build like these other brands. Even though they are still produced by tequila, by tequila Cuervo, like the name nowhere in the bottle is gonna be called like Cuervo. I'm gonna give you an example. Like an example is like uh, 1800. There is a tequila called 1800 that is. Like, actually, 100% agave. And, like, the taste is real good. I'm like, it's good tequila, but it's still produced by Jose Cuervo. They just want to make sure that, like, uh, the person that is going to be paying, like, 50 bucks for a bottle of, like, uh, tequila 1800 does not confuse them and, like, be like, okay, I'm just getting something that, like, my daughter is getting, like, uh, when she goes to Cancun. No, no, like, they want to make sure that, like, this person that is paying uh, $50 for a bottle, like, knows that he's getting like an upper like an upper high end tequila. So that's how they do it, by building these different labels. There's another label, like the highest end label of like Jose Cuervo is called Reserva de la Familia. That one still keeps the name uh, Jose Cuervo. But when you see the bottle you understand why it goes for a for over a hundred dollars. Like they have like a personal design of the bottle like i'm mean, like they 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 change the designs of the bottle every like i don't know six months every year like the bottle like looks really nice like it comes in like a wooden box and it's like high in tequila like a hundred percent agave uh it's been aged for over three years so that's another way of like attacking this side of the market so let's go back to this paper that you've worked mm -hmm. on the rise of small tequila producers. Mm -hmm. Is that like the rise of the craft beer market yes. here in the United States? Yes. There is a there there is a problem like in economic theory. And it's that we focus a lot on the cost of production when we build our models. If everything is driven by cost of production, we cannot explain this rise of small producers right away. We need to embed some other element that we don't know yet what it is into our models to be able to predict what is happening in like these craft uh, producers of, of beer and these like uh, small producers of tequila. Like we still don't understand why it is happening. Some people argue that it's because like uh, tastes like in the United States have changed. Like all of a sudden like uh, it's becoming more trendy to drink something that was produced by a craft producer instead of like a massive producer. While this is true, um, when you embed that in a model, still doesn't capture the concept of this growth of small producers. We still like, we, we have embedded that idea. Like we have made like rich people consume many more varieties than poor people. And like our model still predicts that Poor, like small producers would have been wiped out by international competition. International competition came in and you see a lot of like small beer producers popping out. Even though like you're buying more Heineken coming from Holland, that's not stopping these small brewers from popping out. The same is with tequila producers. My guess, personal guess, is that it has to do 
with having many more rich people in the United States, especially for the tequila industry. Like that amount of small tequila producers wouldn't be able to produce, wouldn't be able to cover their costs if they only sold to the Mexican market. There, we don't have that many like rich people that would be able to buy that amount of tequila to support all these producers. Instead, the United States does have that market. Like I'm like, you have used New York City, Washington DC, San Francisco, Chicago. Supplying these 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 cities like is more than enough to support like 155 like small producers. Mexico is still consuming more tequila than the United States. No, that's not true. The U.S. is the largest consu consumer of tequila in the world, by so, far. <laughs> so now tequila is really a drink for people in the United States. Oh, yeah. Not just for Mexicanos. Oh, no, no. Like, it's definitely, like, for people in the United States. And it is true. Like, I would say that it's for, like, uh, the Mexican-American community as well. Like, Mexican-Americans, they identify themselves by drinking tequila. I don't know why. <laughs> like Because, like, when they were in Mexico, I can't guarantee that they weren't drinking tequila that expensive. If they were drinking tequila, it wasn't that tequila. It was like... So drinking cerveza, not tequila. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, like, uh, it's like tequila has become like a, an industry, like, uh, focused in the United States, for sure. It's the largest consumer. What haven't we talked about regarding your paper or regarding these economic theories connected to tequila that you think is important for us to note? The evolution also of the types of tequila that have been being produced. For example, like uh, you remember that I was telling you that tequila used to be like a product that was cheap. And all of a sudden they moved into this high-end product. Before 2006, like you could only label tequila as silver, which meant like tequila that wasn't aged at all in barrels. Then there was this one that was called like a um, reposado. It's this kind that like has to be aged between zero, like between three months and one year, right? Then you have this one that is called uh, aged, which is like mm, like uh, put in a barrel for over a year, okay? Now, after 2006, they had to come up with, like, a new sector, which was, like, overaged or extra-aged, extrañejo, which is, like, something that has to be aged over three years. That didn't exist before 2006, but they had to come up with this label because all these micro-distilleries were selling to the United States, like, tequila that was aged for five years, seven years. So this is a new sector that has come up after like uh, NAFTA. Another like, shift in the production is from non-100% tequila to pure tequila. There's been this, uh, this shift from like uh, producing like non-100% to 100%. There is this other um, shift inside the not-100% tequila. You could tell that consumers in the United States weren't educated in tequila like back in the late 1990s why because like when they were buying like uh, aged tequila tequila producers were selling to them aged tequila that was not pure tequila it wasn't 100% agave tequila so production of that of uh, aged non-pure tequila 
disappeared. Now it doesn't exist. Now, like, micro, micro distillers are specialized on making 100% tequila that is aged for a long time. So, yes, there has been, like, this shift of, like, production from massive production into, like, craft production. What I'd like to add is, like, you shouldn't follow, like, these rules that people tell you about, like, oh, this is good tequila, this is bad tequila. I think that anyone has their own tastes. Like, for example, like, what people tell me, like, oh, this, like, uh, this is good wine. I actually don't like it. I don't like wine that has been, like, uh, aged for a long time because I like more, like, fruity tastes. People are the same in tequila, in the tequila industry. Like, I'm like, just try them all and choose the one that you like the most. Thank you, Ramses Armanderas, visiting professor at Webster University and the co-author of the upcoming paper, The Tequila Puzzle, The Rise of Small Tequila Producers, coming from the Latin American Academic Review, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thank you.